church, good morning. We're here to worship the Lord. Worthy Lord, are you to receive our praise our songs this morning?
hear our song to you as we lift up our voices as we sing. Worthy are you, Lord, to receive glory and honor. Worthy of every song that we could ever sing. excited to uh, welcome back uh, Stephen Yule. Uh, Stephen and Allison, his wife, and their two daughters, Laura and Emma, uh, live in Cambridge, and he's the Vice President of Academics at Heritage College. He's also the Dean of the College. I have the privilege of sitting on the Heritage Board with Stephen as one of the Vice Presidents. He's part of our board, and so get some interaction there. And so uh, you all know him. He's been preaching for us since September, and we're excited that he's going to preach again in the summer, and then uh, next year as well, he'll fill in kind of like he has this past ministry season. And so we just haven't had him in for a while. And uh, we, I really, we all appreciate it. He drove in from Cambridge uh, to record the sermon here in our empty auditorium. I think first time he's preached to an empty room. Uh, but we're very thankful to have Stephen with us again, helping us over the next number of weeks with Philippians. And I appreciate it. It's giving me a bit of a break as well. Uh, but I've learned so much from his preaching. I love his preaching. I know you do. We've heard from so many of you. So I'm just excited to have Stephen open up God's Word in Philippians chapter 4 for us today. Well, good morning to everyone at home. It is a pleasure to be back at Redemption Bible Chapel. Even though the auditorium is empty, it's still a privilege to be standing up here in the pulpit and a tremendous privilege and joy to be ministering to you uh, from God's Word uh, this day. I invite you to take your Bibles and continue to worship by turning to Paul's epistle to the Philippians chapter 4. This is a series we started last year. I think it was the month of September, and there have been some breaks along the way. But uh, today we're going to pick up where we left off in Paul's letter to the Philippians and study it right through, right through to the end. Um, the psalmist declares in Psalm 119, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Uh, that is what we need. That is what we need these days. Uh, that is what we need each and every day a guiding light, a place we can turn for direction, for wisdom, for insight, for discernment. And that's precisely what God's Word gives us. Uh, there's a place, it's a small tidal island just off the northeast coast of Scotland. It's called Bell Rock. And it's a tidal island, meaning that it's actually only visible for a few hours each day. As the tide goes out, you can see the rock, and then when the tide comes back in, it hides the rock from view. And you can imagine just how dangerous that rock is to passing ships, to boats going by. And by the end of the 1700s, if memory serves me correctly, by the end of the 1700s, that little rock, Bell Rock, was responsible for six or seven shipwrecks each year. So the government decided it's time for us to put a lighthouse on this rock. It was quite a feat of engineering because the rock was only visible for a few hours a day. But over the course of five or six years, they built this lighthouse, completed in the year 1806. 
And since then, there has only been one shipwreck. It was during the First World War due to the blackout. There was no light in the lighthouse. And so we'll give that a pass. One shipwreck in nearly 220 years. And it just reminded me that this Bell Rock lighthouse, just a, a, a beacon of light as it stands there, uh, giving guidance to those ships and boats passing by so that they escape that peril that lurks beneath the surface of the sea. And God's Word is just like that. It is this guiding, illuminating light, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, guiding our way. So I trust we come to God's Word expectantly this day, and I trust as we turn now to Paul's letter to the Philippians, we come expectingly, expecting to hear the voice of God, and so follow along as I begin reading in Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche. I have no idea if that's how you say their names, but that's how I'm going to pronounce them. Yodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pause and ask the Lord's blessing upon his word this day. Our Heavenly Father, we do come into your presence now with exceeding joy as we consider your loving kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for this great deposit which you have entrusted into our hands, your word, and we do come expectantly, recognizing that it is indeed a light, a lamp that illumines our lives and guides us in your ways. And so we pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word. And may this be for our good. May it be for your glory. And we ask it now in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's our text, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 13. It's our text today. Lord willing, it will be our text next Sunday. 
and the Sunday after that. So three Sundays to get through these verses in Philippians chapter 4. And what I want to do today is I want you to notice two phrases. Two little phrases tucked away in these verses. It's possible you noticed them as I read them for you. But now I want to draw your attention to them and unpack the significance of these little phrases. And I trust this will indeed shed light on this passage in its entirety. The first little phrase is tucked away in verse 9. And it is this, the God of Peace. And so look with me again at what Paul says in the ninth verse. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now what I want us to understand, what I want us to appreciate is this. This phrase, the God of peace, or rather we might call it this title, as it refers to God. This is a description of God in relation to His people. This is not a description of God in relation to this world. It is not a description of God in relation to men and women, boys and girls, generally speaking. It is not a description of the relation of God to unbelievers. Mark my words, this is a description of God as He stands in relation to His people, those who believe in Him. He is our God of peace. He is, in the first place, our God of peace because He is our Redeemer. Paul says in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 1, Many of us will have memorized this verse when we were children. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful verse. It celebrates a tremendous truth. Having been justified by faith. In other words, having believed in the Lord Jesus, having received Him through faith, we now have peace with God. God. The reality is that at one time, I'm speaking to Christians, at one time we didn't enjoy peace with God. As a matter of fact, the Bible makes it very clear, at one time we were actually the objects of God's wrath. Paul tells us that in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were by nature children of wrath. That is an extremely difficult truth to come to grips with. It is it is a very difficult truth for the modern mind to grasp this idea that the natural man, the natural woman is actually the object of God's wrath. I can recall years ago, I'm going back maybe 20 years when we lived up there in Peterborough. Uh, a neighbor of mine, his name was Gord, and he was a nice fellow. We had a good relationship and would often have conversations over the fence. And once in a while, I tried to bring the conversation around to the Lord Jesus. Tried to bring the conversation around to subjects of eternal consequence. And Gord would always cut me short. Uh, He had a difficult time entering into this idea, this notion that he needed the Lord Jesus. And he had a difficult time understanding his need for the Lord Jesus because he had a difficult time understanding that he was actually the object of God's wrath. I mean, Gord had been married to the same woman for over 50 years, a faithful husband. He had raised three or four children. 
He had operated his own business back in the day and had been fair to all of his employees. He had been an upstanding member of his community, a good neighbor. And so as far as Gord was concerned, this idea of needing Christ, this idea of being the object of God's wrath, he just could not compute it cognitively because as far as he was concerned, he was a good man. This is a problem that many people struggle with. It's a bit like, you know, I think back of my, my, young, my oldest daughter when she was maybe two or three years of age. She had one of those plastic balls, and maybe some of you parents, you have one in the home. It was red and blue, half of it red, half of it blue. And in this ball, there were openings in various shapes, squares, crosses, stars, circles, triangles. And you could pull this ball apart, and out would fall all of these yellow pieces which matched the openings in the ball. And it was fascinating to watch a two-year-old pick up these yellow pieces and try to fit them back inside that ball and match them to their corresponding openings. No matter how hard she tried, she could not get the triangle through the opening in the shape of a circle. She couldn't get the cross through the opening of the shape of a, of a star. It just wouldn't fit. It was mismatched. And this was like Gord's understanding. As far as he was concerned, he was a good man. He had lived a good life. And this idea of needing peace in Christ, this idea that he was actually the object of God's wrath, incompatible with how he perceived himself, is the stumbling block for millions stumbling block for millions of men and women. This truth which God's Word makes so clear that by birth we are the object of His judgment, the object of His wrath. Uh, the Bible makes it clear as to why. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, there is none good, no not one. No one does good, not even one. Difficult, extremely difficult for us to accept that. Paul isn't saying, the Bible isn't saying that we don't do good things per se. We do things that are, are good as far as our fellow man is concerned. Paul's point is this, that even the good things we do, even the so-called best things we do, are never good in God's sight. They are never good in God's sight because they are never done for the only motive that is acceptable in the sight of God, which is what? pure love for Him. You see, we have a problem. Uh, the fountain is corrupt, and therefore all that comes out of the fountain, even though it might be good in appearance, is deemed unacceptable before God. And so just completely hypothetically thinking, speaking, you think of that river, and there on the bank of the river is that factory manufacturing who knows what, and uh, they're dumping all sorts of toxins into the river. And you travel down river half a mile, and what does that water look like? It, it, it looks clear, it smells all right, and it tastes all right, but the water is polluted. It's not all right. The toxins have been dumped in upstream. They have traveled downstream, and the fact that we can't detect them is no indicator as to the condition of that water. So too would the human heart. 
This is what the Bible makes so clear. There is a problem in the human heart, a fundamental issue, and it is this. We are lovers of self. We are not lovers of God. And therefore, all that flows from the human heart, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, is of the flesh. And the flesh is at enmity with God. God does not accept it. And for that reason, we are the objects of His wrath. But here's the good news, going back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And so there is a way to be reconciled to God. There is a way to establish peace with God. There is a way to enter back into a relationship with God whereby we are made acceptable. And it is in Christ Jesus, the God-man, the one who is fully God. It's the wonder of wonders. The one who is fully man. And the one who hung upon Calvary's cross where our sin was reckoned to him and he bore the penalty for our sin in full in his body upon the cross. And when we come to God through Christ, now we find peace. Oh, there was a story that circulated some years ago. I picked it up reading a book. And it, went, it was something to do with a, a forest fire that had gone through I think it was Yellowstone, Yellowstone National Park down there in the States. And um, after the forest fire had gone through, a number of park rangers were going through the park, surveying the damage and sifting through what was left of it. And this one park ranger was walking along, and he noticed a, uh, the remains of a bird there on the ground, just the charred remains, ash. And he had a stick in his hand, and he just kind of absent-mindedly, absent-mindedly uh, knocked the uh, burnt remains, corpse of that bird, over. And what scurried out from under that bird? Three little chicks, alive and well. Because as the blaze had passed through, that mother bird had covered those chicks with her wings, and the fire had consumed her, thereby preserving their life. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, my friends. As he hangs upon, the, uh, upon Calvary's cross, he bears in full the wrath of God. So to speak, he swallows it whole entirely. And he leaves nothing for us of the wrath of God. Whereby now if we come to God through faith in Christ, we enjoy this peace, this reconciliation. The hymn writer has expressed it as follows. There is no condemnation. There is no hell for me. The torment and the fire my eyes shall never see. For me there is no sentence. For me, death has no sting, because the Lord who loves me shall shield me with his wing. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God of peace, because he is our Redeemer. But secondly, he is the God of peace because He is our Father. That now in Christ Jesus we come to the living God 
as a reconciled father. Paul writes, listen to these words carefully. In Romans chapter 8, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so, yes, we have been reconciled to God through Christ Jesus. And not only have we been reconciled to God, but we have been adopted into His family, whereby we become His children, sons and daughters of the living God. Adoption is a theme close to my heart. Allison and I, years ago, we traveled. It was September 2011. We traveled to the country of China where we adopted our youngest daughter, Emma. Adopted Emma into our family. Emma now bears our name. Emma eats at our table. Emma lives in our home. Emma inherits our wealth, however small or large that might be, the Lord knows. Emma, she is now part of our family. We love her. We cherish her. We discipline her. We instruct her. We provide for her. We protect her. We share in her happy moments and her not-so-happy moments. She is our child. She is our daughter, a full member of our family. This is the privilege of God's people that He has received us into His family by means of adoption, whereby now as the children of God, we've come alive and we declare, we cry out, Abba, Father. A preacher who wrote a book on his own adoption experience years ago, his name is Russell Moore, he shared his experience, his wife's experience, as they traveled to the country of Ukraine to adopt their two sons. And he wrote the following. And listen very carefully to this. Of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all the others in its horror. It was quiet. The place was filled with an eerie silence, quieter than the Library of Congress despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. If you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gentle rocking as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their beds. They didn't cry because no one responded to their cries. They had stopped crying. That is dehumanizing in its horror. The first moment I knew our boys had received us in some strange and preliminary way was the moment we walked out of the room for the last time on that first trip, that first visit, when they fell back in their cribs and cried. The first time I ever heard them do it, it was because for whatever reason they seemed to think they would be heard. And for whatever reason, they no longer liked the prospect of being alone in the dark. Oh, we've come alive when we come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we know what it means to be reconciled to God, to enjoy peace with God. And we come alive when we take to heart what it means to be adopted into His family, to be counted, to be reckoned, to be considered, to be treated as children of God, we come alive and we cry, Abba, Father. 
and we cry, Abba, Father. Why? Because now, for the first time in our lives, we expect to be heard. It is as the Lord Jesus himself taught us to pray, our Father, who is in heaven. He now knows all about us as his children. He knows our tears. He knows our dreams and our prayers. He knows our sighs and our groanings and our longings. Charles Haddon Spurgeon declared the following, Your Father is now looking at you with as intent a gaze as if there were nobody else in the world but you. He is the God of peace. And He is the God of peace as He stands in relation to His people. And He is the God of peace as He stands in relation to His people. Because He is, firstly, our Redeemer. And He is, secondly, our Father. The second little phrase I want you to notice in this text is found back in verse 7. And it's the phrase, the peace of God. So the first phrase was the God of peace in verse 9. The second phrase, a little different but important, the peace of God. Look with me again at the seventh verse. And the peace of God, says Paul, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is the peace of God? We can describe it as follows. It is an eternal calm that lies deep within the trusting soul. Again, it is an eternal calm, quiet, which lies deep within the trusting soul. It is the experience of that man, the experience of that woman, that boy, that girl, who has come to God through Christ Jesus. It is the experience of that individual who is in relationship with the God of peace. It is the experience of that individual who knows God as their Redeemer and as their Father. They now enjoy the peace of God, an eternal calm that lies deep within the trusting soul. I think I've shared with you before that... Uh, Allison and I and our girls, we lived in Texas for some time, and every September, October, hurricane season, and as those hurricanes formed over the Atlantic Ocean, there they would be on the news, and uh, they'd be tracking them as they came across the Atlantic Ocean, heading towards the Florida Keys, into the Gulf of Mexico, and uh, up at times to the coast of Texas. And those hurricanes, I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable that the, the size of these things and the sheer ferocity, the strength and the power and the destruction. And even when they were out over the ocean, how they would stir up those waves. But if you were to descend into the deep, not actually that far beneath the surface, you know what you would discover? You would discover that the sea, the ocean's waters were still and perfect, not moving at all. That while that tempest raged up above, and while it stirred the surface of the ocean into such a frenzy, if you just sank down but a little, 
you would discover that all was calm, all was quiet. This is the peace of which Paul speaks here in verse 7. The peace of God, an eternal calm that lies deep within the trusting soul, whereby no matter what's going on around us, whatever is transpiring, whatever circumstances we are experiencing, there is a peace that lies deep within the soul, untouched by all that assails us in life, because it is a peace that is not rooted in our circumstances. It is a peace that is rooted in the God of peace and what it means to know Him as our Redeemer and as our Father. And what Paul does then in Philippians chapter 4, what he does in verses 2 through 13 is he raises, he addresses, let's say, three experiences in which we desperately need this peace. Three experiences, life experiences, perhaps three of the most common experiences which threaten this peace and in which we must turn to the God of peace that we might know this inner eternal calm unassailed by all that was going on around us. The first experience is this, broken relationships. Oh, if anything will seek to assail the peace of God reigning in our hearts, it is this, broken relationships, verses 2 through 5. The second is this, anxious thoughts, verses 6 through 9. And the third is this, trying circumstances, verses 10 through 13. We need the God of peace so that we might enjoy and really know the peace of God in the midst of broken relationships, anxious thoughts, and trying circumstances. Now, we cannot handle these. We cannot address all of these in the time remaining today. Here's what we're going to do. Trying circumstances, Lord willing, two Sundays from now. Anxious thoughts, next Sunday. Broken relationships right now. Paul addresses these broken relationships, verses 2 through 5, and he begins by introducing us to two women. Again, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce their names. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's something going on in the church at Philippi. The, the, we have these two women, Yodia and Syntyche. They, they've known each other for some time, evidently. They've actually labored side by side with the Apostle Paul, ministered with him in the proclamation, the furtherance of the gospel. Yet something has happened, something has transpired, whereby these two women have now had a falling out. They have experienced a relational break. What's happened? What has transpired? I need some details. What, what has led these two women to this point? Paul says nothing. 
He provides no information. He doesn't provide any background knowledge. He doesn't see fit to give us any of the particulars as to what has come about to cause this broken relationship. And yet, although we do not know any of the details, I can tell you in no uncertain terms as to what has caused this broken relationship between these two women. James tells us in James chapter 4 verse 1, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The Apostle Paul, Paul, James in chapter 3 of his book, he calls this selfish ambition. He tells us this is, not, this is not complex, this is not difficult to understand. At times when quarreling arises in our midst, whether it's in the home or the church, we try to look to this reason and that reason and try to explain it from so many different angles. But in actual fact, when you just tear away all the layers, quarreling exists for only one reason. It's called selfish ambition. One person or two people are not getting what they want. Someone aspires to something. Someone wants something. They're not getting it. They react, and as a result, there is quarreling, and as a result, there is a broken relationship. And that's what we have here in the church of Philippi. Yodia and Syntyche, they've had this falling out, this parting of the ways, because selfish ambition either reigns in one of them or two of them, whereby the result is this broken relationship. Oh, selfish ambition. It makes us want to be uppermost, causing envy. It makes us want to be in control, causing anxiety. It makes us think we deserve better, causing discouragement. It makes us think we've been unfairly treated, leading to bitterness. It makes us wish people would notice us, causing discontentment. And as a result, there is distance. When it rears its ugly head and it, and it enters into a relationship in the home, in the church, in the community, whatever the case may be, suddenly there is distance where once there was closeness. There is suspicion where once there was trust. There was animosity where once there was compassion. There is accusation, where at one time there was encouragement. And there is now bitterness, where once there was sweetness. This is what has transpired in the church at Philippi. This is the situation as word has come to the Apostle Paul in his imprisonment. Undoubtedly, he's bereaved by it. He's troubled by it. And so he inserts now this pastoral note, I entreat. Oh, I plead with you. I beg you, Yodia and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Oh, the remedy, the great remedy, and the only remedy for a broken relationship like this is the God of peace, whereby we enjoy the peace of God. It is only when we have a renewed appreciation 
a renewed vision, first of all, understanding in the mind. And then secondly, a renewed inclination, whereby our hearts are quickened, that are awakened, that are ignited as to who we are in God's sight, as to what it means to be in relationship with the living God, as to what it means to know the God of peace, by virtue of the fact that He is our Redeemer and our Father, that when this is renewed, and when this again embraces our hearts as it should, we discover that selfish ambition cannot coexist with the peace of God. The peace of God which flows from the God of peace, that when it reigns and rules in the heart, it will force out selfish ambition. It leaves no room for it. I made a reference, to passing reference to Texas a few moments ago. Bear with me, just thinking of Texas again. They have trees down there called live oaks. And they're called live oaks because they keep their leaves even during the winter months. And so even down there, just like up here, come fall, October, November, the leaves fall from the trees, except for live oaks. They keep their leaves right through the winter. And their leaves only fall in March, April when the new buds begin to sprout on the branches of those trees. Because you see, it requires the new buds to force out the old leaves. It's the same thing when it comes to selfish ambition. If selfish ambition reigns and rules in our hearts, the result will be quarreling. The result will be relational chaos. The result will be broken relationships in the home and in the church. And the only way to rectify that, the only way to remedy it is to force it out. And the only way to force it out is to replace it with something else. And Paul indicates in this text that it must be replaced, thereby forced out with the peace of God that flows from the God of peace. A renewed understanding and appreciation of what it means to have God as our Redeemer, to be reconciled to Him, and what it means to have God as our Father. And when this is the case, selfish ambition dies. It dies when our hearts are melted by the God of peace. And when our hearts are melted by the God of peace, and the peace of God rules and reigns, what happens? Well, suddenly we're less defensive. We stop holding grudges. We begin to extend grace even to those who've let us down. We stop being so harsh. We stop being so judgmental. We start giving people the benefit of the doubt. We're thankful for what is good rather than always harping on what is wrong. We stop being so negative. We stop being so self-protective. The God of peace leading to the peace of God, the sure and certain remedy for broken relationships. You know, over the years, um, I have experienced broken relationships. And over the years, I have counseled many struggling with broken relationships. Again, in the context of the home between husband and wife, um, in the context of the home between siblings, in the church, as in the case of Philippians chapter 4, between believers. 
And I have sat down with individuals at war with one another and in open conflict, believers, professing believers. And this one will say one thing and this one will say something else and issues are raised and accusations are levied, charges are made, defenses are mounted. And the expectation is that you will step into it as a mediator and navigate your way through it and somehow bring about peace. And uh, I have learned over the years that when I find myself in the midst of that kind of a situation, I don't listen to anybody to begin with. I'm actually not very interested in the particulars. I'm not interested in the details. We'll get to those. I will hear from you in a moment. And I will hear from you when the time is right. But the starting point is this. The starting point is the condition of the heart. Because if the condition of the heart isn't right, there is nowhere to go. Until the heart is in the right place, we can talk and talk and talk all we want. You can mount as many arguments as you possibly can. You can mount as many defenses as you possibly can and we'll all pile up in one heap, one mess in front of us. But until the heart is in the right condition before the Lord, there is nowhere to go. And so my starting point, my starting point is always this. It is this question. Does the God of peace reign in your heart whereby the peace of God is the pre prevalent, dominant attitude of your heart whereby selfish ambition is being pushed out? Because if it isn't being pushed out, and if selfish ambition reigns supreme in your heart, we can talk for a month of Sundays. We can talk and talk and talk and talk. And we can go over the mess. We can unpack all the details. We will get nowhere until our hearts are right before the Lord. And until we have an awakened, a renewed understanding of what it means to be at peace with God through Jesus Christ what it means to be adopted into the family of God and what it really means day by day to have the peace of God reigning and ruling in our hearts. When that is in place, oh, then we can get down to the details. Then we can make some progress. You know, I'm thinking of the Merchant of Venice, one of Shakespeare's famous works, the Merchant of Venice. And the Merchant of Venice tells, tells a, 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 is quite an engaging story. You have Antonio, the Venetian businessman, right? And uh, Antonio, his ambition, some sort of commercial enterprise involving ships. But he doesn't have the money to back this commercial enterprise. So he goes to an individual named Shylock. Well, Antonio and Shylock have a history. They are not friends. That's an understatement. They've been warring for years. And Shylock holds this deep, bitter resentment toward Antonio. But Shylock agrees to loan Antonio the money for his commercial enterprise as long as he signs a contract. And according to this contract, the money must be paid back by a certain time on a certain date. If he reneges on the contract, if he fails to pay back the money that Shylock is loaning him, then he owes Shylock a pound of his flesh. I mean, it's rather graphic. But this is the hatred that Shylock has for or toward Antonio. Antonio accepts the money. He thinks it's a sure thing. No problem. Pound of flesh. He was never going to get to that. Takes the money. Off he goes on his commercial enterprise. It involves ships traveling somewhere, purchasing something, coming back. They're caught in a storm and they're all at the bottom of the sea. 
he loses everything. He doesn't have a dime. And the date comes, the hour comes when it's to be paid back. No clemency on the part of Shylock. He will not hear of it. He, he will not budge. He will not grant him a year, a month, an extra day. A friend steps forward and now offers him volunteers to pay the debt on behalf of Antonio. And Shylock says, too bad, that ship has sailed. The hour and the day have passed. He owes me a pound of flesh. I will have my pound of flesh. And how often that is the attitude, even of professing believers, where selfish ambition reigns supreme, and envy therefore has taken hold. Malice has taken hold. Resentment has taken hold. Bitterness has taken hold. And they want their pound of flesh. They want to get even. They must be in the right. And then these problems surface. There are these relational breaks. And then we're called to resolve them. We're called to make peace. How do we make peace when that is the condition of the heart? It is impossible. It is why we come back to this text. And again, it's why we take to heart this central truth. God is the God of peace as He stands in relation to His people. He is the God of peace as He stands in relation to His people because He is our Redeemer and He is our Father. From that flows the peace of God. And the peace of God reigns and rules supreme in our lives and it dictates our relationship with others. And it forces out this selfish ambition. And this is Paul's remedy. This is Paul's counsel to Yodia and Syntyche. And if this is in place... If this is in place, then they are in a position to reconcile. And in particular, they are in a position to obey three commands. And these are the commands Paul issues then in verses 2 through 5. The first is this, right in verse 2. Agree in the Lord. You know the God of peace. You enjoy the peace of God. From that foundation now, I plead with you, Yodia and Syntyche. I entreat you. I beg you. Agree in the Lord. Make it your chief ambition, as Paul says in his epistle to the Ephesians, to preserve, maintain, guard the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And may this be your operating, operate, the foundation of the way you operate, the way you function, is you enjoy the peace of God from the God of peace because you are in relationship with Him. May it color everything. May it be the determining factor. And when it is, then you have a foundation upon which to build. And I plead with you to agree in the Lord. Second command is this in verse 4, right at the beginning. Rejoice in the Lord always. He repeats himself. Why? Because he knows how difficult it is to obey this command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. God is my Redeemer. At one time, I was the object of divine wrath. If I had died in that condition, I would have spent eternity in hell. At one time, God was the object of my enmity. That is who I was, a, a child of wrath. God owed me nothing. God was not obliged to do anything for me. 
The Lord Jesus Christ has gone to Calvary's cross. He has given up himself, surrendered himself, offered himself up as a living sacrifice for me that I might be reconciled to God and enjoy peace with God. Not only that, God has now received me into his family, adopted me, given me his name, rights and privileges and blessings and gifts, and I'm now an heir of God and co-heir with Christ. Do I understand who I am? I take this to heart and it humbles me and it breaks me down. And all I can do is rejoice. All I can do is give thanks. And as I give thanks, it forces out that selfish ambition. It leaves no room for anger and envy and jealousy and malice and bitterness. Oh, here's a sure foundation upon which to build when we experience relational breaks. We get back to the basics. And from those basics, we put these commands into practice. We agree in the Lord. And we rejoice in the Lord. And thirdly, the third command, it takes us into the final verse, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. If you have another translation, English translation, you might have the word uh, gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Let your moderation, that is self-control, be known to everyone. All of those words work. They mean more or less the same thing as expressed in the translation I'm using. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Reasonableness. Think about who you are. Think about what it means to know the God of peace and enjoy the peace of God. And thinking on these things, act consistently. Be reasonable. Let that reasonableness be known to everyone. Let that reasonableness be known, as Paul says earlier, back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, by having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to be reasonable. That's what it means to exercise moderation. That's what it means to be gentle and sensible. It is to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. What mind is he talking about? The fact that the Lord Jesus left a crown of glory for a crown of thorns. Oh, such humility. And Paul is building on that. And he's exhorting us to think it through. Be reasonable. Understand who Christ is. Understand and take to heart what Christ has done. Act upon it and let your reasonableness be known to everyone. As one author put it years ago, Oh, it is an unseemly sight to see a humble Savior and a proud sinner. An unseemly sight to see a humble Savior and a proud sinner. We fix our gaze upon the Lord Jesus. And fixing our gaze upon the Lord Jesus, we enter into what it means to know the God of peace, our Redeemer and our Father, whereby we enjoy the peace of God, 
which then reigns and rules supreme in our lives, whereby when broken relationships, sadly, do arise, we are in a position to heed these three commands. Agree in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you and praise you for its clarity. We thank you and praise you for its relevance. We thank you and praise you for its truthfulness. And what, again, what a great gift it is that you have entrusted to us. And as we have opened it and studied it and heard it, we pray not only this day for the illumination of the mind to understand it, we pray for the inclination of the heart to obey it. And we ask that your spirit might indeed be working in us and that this might be for the furtherance of your kingdom. Oh, receive our thanks as we offer it and hear our requests as we make them. And we ask it all in the precious name of the Lord Jesus.